All right, so we have been working through uh, these marks of a healthy church. And uh, so far, um, we have covered, um, uh, let's see, first of all, uh, the need for expository preaching. And that there is a rhyme or reason to the flow of uh, what these nine marks are. Uh, and expository preaching, of course, is the commitment to say that what we're going to be preaching, what we're going to be teaching, flows out of the Word of God. Not so much that, actually, that's not correct. It is the Word of God. Not that it flows out of the Word of God, that it is the Word of God that is being proclaimed. That that is our source. It is God's Word. We want to see God's Word. And as a, as a pastor or as a teacher or even as a parent, you want to be teaching the Word of God. You want to expose it. You want to press it. You want to apply it to those who are under your care. And then we looked at the subject of biblical theology. And uh, the subject of biblical theology basically says that all of our understanding of what is true is going to be found in the pages of God's Word. And there is a flow to God's Word. There are themes in God's Word. And so the Bible then is the, is the foundation and the basis of our understanding of what doctrine is and what theology is. And uh, even as we study God's Word today, we're going to be um, using biblical theology to help us understand uh, what is taking place in the life of a particular individual. Then, last week, we talked about the Gospel. And uh, the Gospel, uh, we identified really as, uh, in four words, um, God, man, Christ response, if you remember that. Um, we talked about uh, how sometimes the gospel, many times the gospel is very watered down, is very weak, and uh, there's a tendency in American Christianity in particular to not talk about the real condition of man and the destiny of man, but just to talk about the good bits, and uh, that's just really a, a false gospel because it's not a complete gospel, and the need to make sure that we understand who God is, He's Creator. He's the ruler. Um, he is righteous and holy. Man is a sinner in rebellion against God. But Jesus Christ was the one who came and is our substitute. He is the solution. He is the answer. He is the mediator. And what he accomplished on the cross paved the way for this new life that we can have with God. And then there is this response is that we, we do participate in this in some way, shape, or form. But our participation doesn't save us. We participate in the sense that we are responding to that gospel. And we do that by repentance or through repentance and faith. We'll talk a little bit about that today because what we're talking about today is the subject of conversion, biblical conversion. And, um, you know, I say that because uh, conversion can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, right? And we want to make sure that we, we have a grasp of that true gospel, but we also want to understand um, what, does it, what does it mean then to be converted? It's possible to actually grasp the truths of the gospel and not be converted. Understand that? And it's, it's, so it's possible for someone to have the vocabulary of the gospel, to even be able to tell the gospel to someone else, but not truly be converted, but think that they're converted simply because they can articulate or even say the gospel. In fact, um, you know, Mark Dever said it very clearly in that little book. It is possible to be an active member of a local church and yet not truly be a member of the people of God. And friends, that has been my experience as a pastor. I cannot assume that just because people are gathered together to worship together, to hear God's word together, that name the name of Christ as their Savior, that all those people are truly saved. In fact... 
As a pastor, I have a, I have a compulsion by God to make sure that the gospel is proclaimed week in and week out. I can't assume that when someone says they're a believer that they are. That, now, I'm not here to unsave you. Okay? But if the word of God being proclaimed puts a question and presses you in a certain area to the point you're saying, I'm not sure, praise God. It is God at work to confirm in you either that you are or you're not. To shake you up a little bit. And that's okay. That's not the pastor being mean. That's the pastor being loving to make sure that you are truly going to the place where God intends you to go, and that is, of course, to heaven. I want to begin this morning by reading an excerpt from someone else's message. It's always handy when you can preach a message by reading someone else's message. You know, it kind of you know, solves your whole work problem, right? Um, Charles Spurgeon, I want you to listen to what he has to say. He was, a, of course, a key pastor in the late 80s, or 80s, 1800s. <laughs> it was 1880s, so, you know, so... This is going downhill from here, guys, just so you know that, okay? All right. Here's what he says. They say they are saved, and they stick to it that they are, and think it wicked to doubt it. Let that ponder. But yet they have no reason to warrant their confidence. There are those who are ready to be fully assured. There are others to whom it will be death to talk of it. There is a great difference between presumption and full assurance. Full assurance is reasonable. It is based on solid ground. Presumption takes for granted and with brazen face pronounces that to be its own uh, which it has no right to do whatsoever. Beware, I pray thee, of presuming that thou art saved. If with thy heart thou dost trust Jesus, then thou art saved. But if thou merely sayest, I trust Jesus, it doth not save thee. If thy heart be renewed, if thou shalt hate the things that thou didst once love, and love the things which thou, I'm going to modernize it here, that you, you let's see, love the things, um, and love the things that thou uh, did once hate, if thou hast really repented, if there be a thorough change of mind in thee, if thou be born again, and hast thou reason to rejoice, but if there be not Vital change, no inward godliness, if there be no love to God, no prayer or work of the Holy Spirit, then thy saying, I am saved, is but thine own assertion, and it may delude, but it will never deliver thee. Our prayer ought to be, oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed with real faith, with real salvation, with the trust in Jesus that is the essential of faith, not with the conceit that begets credulity. God preserve us from imaginary blessings. Now, friends, I read that to simply say this. That when I say the same thing, I'm standing on the shoulder of giants. Men of God in years past who have said the reality and the truth that you may not be saved simply because you claim to be saved. And even as a pastor, I have to be asking myself the question, God, I, I, I believe I am. I'm coming to you. I'm humbling before you. But if you need to expose some sinfulness in my heart and show me something, then please do. I want that. I need that. And don't be so surprised that some pastor somewhere comes to an understanding that he's not a believer. 
because churches are full of people that truly are not converts. They're not true believers. It's a sad reality. It's also offensive. It's offensive to those people that you would even question their salvation, right? Why? Because it says so in the front of my Bible. I, here's the date when I got saved. You know, my mom told me that when I was five years old, I knelt by the bed and I prayed. And I'm not saying that that is necessarily wrong, but let's be careful what we base our conversion on. Okay? Again, Spurgeon telling the story. Um, he was walking through town and there was a drunk that um, was leaning against the lamppost. And he yelled out, hey, Mr. Spurgeon, do you remember me? And Spurgeon replied, no, why should I? And the man said, because I'm one of your converts. To which Spurgeon responded, well, you must be one of mine. You're certainly not one of the Lord's. <laughs> and oh, that we would be so bold to say true things like that. Because people's lives do not back up what they say that they are. Okay. And this, friends, this is the state of the church in America, is it not? That people say, hey, I'm a, I'm a child of God, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, and, and show me by your fruit, show me by what you're doing that that's a reality in your life. Okay? Those are hard words, but I think are important words. And as I was mentioning before, it is my job as a pastor to constantly question your salvation, to press the word of God into your heart, and week in and week out to, 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 have the full, to, to do that so that you can have the full confidence and the assurance that you truly are a child of God and that you're trusting in him and him alone. And if I fail to do that, I'm failing in my responsibility. Okay? So, um, this morning, we're not going to define the gospel. That was what we did last week. We walked through really what the gospel is. This morning, what I want to talk about is more um, this, the, the whole flow, the process that takes place as it relates to conversion. We're going to look at it, I want to say from man's perspective, but we're also going to look at it from God's perspective. Now, let's just think about this. I put up here... Um, well, there's the, the passage you can look at. But think about perspective. You guys, anyone here do, do needlework? I'm sure you've heard this illustration before, that the person who's doing the needlework, what they're looking and they're seeing this picture forming in their needlework, it looks beautiful and makes sense, but you turn it upside down, it all just seems to be a mess, right? And, and there's a sense in which, guys, I think many times, we in our confusion, in our lack of understanding, look at the subject of conversion like we're looking underneath this needlepoint. We don't understand how God does what he does. But God looking at what he is doing, what he is forming, it makes perfect sense. It is clear in his eyes. Let me ask you a question. Is God sovereign? Does he know what he's doing? Is he a good God? Is he wise? Yes. But as we look at what he's doing, we may scratch our heads. Because we're going to talk about this morning, just briefly, election. We're going to talk about God drawing. We're, you know, we're going to talk about this whole regeneration and what takes place during that time. And friends, for us to figure out the details of that and how those things connect is like looking underneath at all these strands going all over the place, right? God isn't telling us that we need to figure that out. What he's saying is, this is what I do. 
And I need to trust that what he's telling me is true. And then rest in it and seek to have greater understanding of what God is doing then in my life because of what he says. So as we we think about this perspective, we want to look at God's perspective, but we're also going to recognize that we have a perspective too. And sometimes it's hard because we don't always see what's going on. All right, and so as we look at this particular passage, um, we want to we want to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Um, let's go back here to um, this passage here, Acts sixteen. It should be fourteen through fifteen, I believe. One who heard us, this is um, talking about Paul and his journey there to Philippi. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. And uh, she was from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And I just, just let me just kind of throw you out where we're going here, okay? We're going to look at Lydia. And we're going to look, first of all, at what happened to Lydia prior to her conversion. I'm calling that Lydia's journey. Okay? So these are the main points. If you want to jot them down, that's fine. But the idea is what is happening prior to her conversion? There's something going on, and God is at work, is he not? Okay? So there's a journey going on. Then we're going to look at what happened to Lydia during her conversion. All that took place there at that conversion. Uh, Call that Lydia's conversion. And then what happened to Lydia after her conversion? Lydia's fruit. All right? And it's all right there. All the events are there. But here's the thing. We're going to use biblical theology to backfill the story. What I mean by that is we're going to, we're going to understand what God says that he is doing from other portions of Scripture to help us understand what God is actually doing in the life of Lydia and ultimately in our own lives and what he has done, and what he is doing, and what he is yet to do, okay? All right, so um, one, one thing I want you to ask yourself as you're going through this passage with me today is this. Is this a picture of my life? Is God speaking to me? Have I been truly converted? Just join me as we have a word of prayer here. Just, I, I just really need God's help this morning. Lord, thank you. <sighs> For giving us the opportunity to even pause and to consider the beauty of what you do, Lord, in bringing about conversion. We are so undeserving. Lord, we have shaken our fist at you so many times. We have rebelled against you. Lord, we, we are naturally inclined to that. But Lord, you, through your love and your goodness and grace, have, have done something in us, Lord, that we do not deserve And Lord, it is so easy to rest on our own actions and to neglect your work in us and to magnify ourselves and to slight you. And Lord, there's nothing that we bring to the equation of salvation because it is all of you. Help us today, Lord, to be in awe of that reality. And Lord, allow me as your messenger just to unpack and to help um, your people see this morning what it is that you desire for them to see. And Lord, if there is someone here who, Lord, who is not truly a child of God, someone who's not truly regenerate, someone who's not truly 
converted. Lord, I ask that our time this morning would convict them. And Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, would just work powerfully in their lives, Lord, because we want to be a church that is truly um, regenerate, truly the people of God. And Lord, help us to do our part to, to pray toward that end and to, to humble ourselves before your word this morning. In your precious name, amen. All right, so we looked at these perspectives. Now let's look at Lydia's journey. Lydia's journey. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate, to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. So let's just, just do some, some basic um, you know, data gathering here. What do we know about Lydia here from this passage? Well, first of all, she was a seller of purple goods. Okay? She was a merchant of some sort. She sold these purple goods. And purple, by the way, if you remember, was a, an expensive dye. To make something that color, it was a royal color. Um, and uh, so these goods weren't just normal goods, they were expensive goods. Okay? Secondly, she's from the city of Thyatira, which is known for its purple dye, which is obviously where that came from. And she's now in Philippi selling this stuff. It's interesting also, though, that her name Lydia um, may be also a description of her, not so much because of her name, but because of the territory which she was from, because Lydia was the greater territory in which Thyatira was. So it's possible that was her kind of label. You know, she's the lady from, lady from Lydia coming to Philippi to sell her stuff. We don't know. She's called Lydia here. Um, and it's not significantly important, but I think what's significant here is that she is, um, she's rich, she's a businesswoman. Um, we're also told in verse 15, as well as verse 40, that she has a large enough home to house all the missionaries that were there, and then ultimately where the church was going to reside. So she had a pretty significant home there in Philippi, and she was selling purple. She had a connect in, connection to Thyatira as well as to Philippi. She must have been pretty well off and had some influence, okay? But then we're also told that she was a worshiper of God. All right, she was Greek, but she was worshiping the God of Israel. And, you know, initially you're thinking, okay, so she, she worships God. She's in. Is she? Uh, all right, well, we're going to discover that one, right? This is her journey. This is a description of, of where she is and how she got here and how God orchestrated all these details so that when Paul comes and sits down by the river, she's there listening to him. Right? Now, or is it just simply coincidence? Is, does God function in the context of coincidence? Or is everything determined by him? I mean, I, I married a gal from California who, that ultimately brought me out here. And you know the story, you know, parents from India, born in Tel Aviv. How did I end up in California? God worked it all out. You couldn't plan it. See, God does that. He's in the business of, of carrying out his purposes, his accomplishment, what he wants to do in the lives of those whom he loves. 
So the story of Lydia ultimately then is also our story. Insert your own story. Insert all the things that you have gone through to come to the cross. Some of you came by virtue of having godly parents who raised you in the things of God, who taught you faithfully through the years, and it's been pretty much a steady go, and you recognizing that, hey, yeah, you know, God's way is the only way. That's what I believe. That's what I hold to. Some others of you, though, that hasn't been your story. That hasn't been your journey. Your life has been rough. It's been difficult. It's been a challenge. You've gone through some, some horrible, difficult experiences. And yet, you have come to the cross. You've come to the place where you have put your faith fully and completely in Christ. Others of you have come through the blindness of, of religion. It could be from Catholicism. It could be from Mormonism. It could be from legalism. It could be from um, some kind of an atheism. But it's been your journey. It's where you came from. The point here is this, that we, have, we all come to the cross along different roads, don't we? God takes us along different journeys. And ultimately, though, although it's our journey, it's his journey for us. Now, I want you to think about that. Because you might say that Lydia came seeking God. I mean, it says here she was a worshiper of God. But Scripture is clear that it was God that came seeking her. It's God that comes seeking us. Uh, Romans chapter 3 and verse 11. Romans chapter 3 and verse 11 says this. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Listen, if, if someone is dead in their trespasses and sins, if they're blind... They can't move. They can't pursue. They're not oriented to God at all. The only reason that she was seeking God here, the only reason that she was pursuing God, you might want to say, is because God was at work in her. John 6, 44, No one can come to me, talking about Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. God is in the business right here of drawing Lydia to himself. There's this journey going on. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So is Lydia seeking God? Yes, but understand She's only seeking God because God has done something in her to draw her to himself. Now, I know your, your mind is starting to turn into mud right, as you start thinking about some of this stuff. But this is what God tells us that he does. He is at work. He's drawing. It's, it's his journey for her. You see, scripture tells us that God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Go to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, just so you can see it there. Now think about that statement. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Was that a long time ago? Well, it depends on if you're, you know, a creationist or not, right? It could be billions and billions and billions of years ago, or it could be a shorter time. The point is, before God created, He had already chosen you to be one of his children. Now, how did I come up with that? Did I come up with that with philosophy and, and just contemplating spiritual matters? Is that where I came up with that? Where did I come up with that? God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. It's staggering to think that God chooses. We might be a little okay if we're saying, okay, you know, Lydia's there at the riverside and God saw her desire and her seeking Him and said, okay, you know, I'm going to choose you. That might settle more with our human thinking, right? But that's not the reality. God chose when? Before the creation of the world. Tough one. In choosing, though, he is also drawing. So we have two important theological um, doctrines, theological teachings, or biblical principles here. The first one is election. All right? And that's the whole idea of, of God choosing. He chooses us to be saved. Now listen, the only reason I can say that's a reality is because God's word says it very, very clearly. This is what I'm saying. I'm looking, I'm looking at the needlepoint from the top down, right? If you try and figure that one out from underneath, you're going to go nuts. God says it, I have to embrace it. Right? Okay. Now, we, you will grow in your understanding of that as you begin to tie passages of Scripture together and, and stuff. God reveals Himself here. But there's also what's called um, His calling. His calling. This is the work of God by His Holy Spirit in which He summons men and women to come to Him and to receive His mercy in Christ. Now, there are two kind of calls that we find. There's the general call. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever. There's this big general call to everyone, right? But then there's what's called the effectual call. And that is the call that, that is, is to those people whom God has chosen to come to himself. Matthew 22, verse 14, just reinforces this. It says, for many are called, but few are chosen. I just, you know, you, you kind of say, well, wait a second, that doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. Why would God choose one person, not choose another person? I know. Because in our humanity, we can't figure out how to choose one from the other because we would we'd be biased in our choices, right? We would choose unfairly. But God is, let's put it this way, we are not God. <laughs> God, in His wisdom, in his perfect goodness, chooses. It's a sovereign choice. He is over everything, and he has the freedom to do as he wills. Does he not? Okay. John 15, verse 16. Speaking to the disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should also abide. So, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Okay? So, the, the point here I want us to see is that there is this journey going on that Lydia, obviously, is a part of. It's her life. And we have all been on a journey. We're either have been on the journey to the cross, and we've gotten to the cross, and we've embraced the cross, or we're still on that journey. Or, there's the possibility that God hasn't chosen you. Now, how do we determine who's chosen and who's not? I'll give you a simple answer. You pull up their shirt and you see whether they have that E stamped on their back, right? right I mean, that's, you got you to figure out whether or not that's true. No, I don't know. 
God hasn't given that to me. He's just given me the understanding. That's what he does. He's told me to proclaim the good news. And he will figure out who's coming to him ultimately. Right? And parable of the sower. Go out, sow the seed, and it's going to land on the ground that's already been prepared by God to receive the, the, the seed of the gospel. Okay? It's not for us to determine who is elect and who's not elect. But it is for us to rest on the fact that God has chosen us. Because if I have chosen God, then what's the problem with that? It's all based on my choice. And it isn't amazing grace anymore. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, is not Newton saying, you know, God, I'm going to choose you. I've been a bad guy. No, the whole story is about how awful he was and how God came and ripped him out of that and granted him grace. That's why it's so amazing. It is so undeserving. We don't deserve his goodness and grace. Now, there's a lot more to say on that subject, right? I mean, battles have been fought on that subject. This morning, though, we want to press on. Election, God's calling. It's all part of God's drawing. Let's look at now uh, what we're calling her conversion. Her conversion. Let me remind you of the, the images the Bible uses to describe the unbeliever. They are blind. They are enslaved. They are bankrupt. They're dead. They're in darkness. They're hopeless. They're helpless. Right? That's their condition. So how does an unbeliever move from blindness to seeing, from slavery to freedom, from being bankrupt to being rich, from being dead to be alive, from being in darkness to being in the light, from being hopeless to being confident and, and fully assured, from being helpless and to having a helper? That's the question. How do you move there? How do you get from that place to another to the, the place where God wants you to be and, and God can only take you there? And that's what we're calling conversion, or better, the word would be regeneration. Okay? But first of all, let's talk a little bit about what conversion is not. What is conversion not? And and just want to briefly just kind of mention some things here, right? Conversion is not simply rearranging the furniture of your life because you're uncomfortable with your sin. You know, it's just like, oh man, you know, yeah, I, I sin in this area. And you kind of just rearrange your schedule and your priorities and all that kind of stuff. And okay, now it's going to be better. Um, that isn't conversion. It's not just having, you know, new habits and new clothes and new choices. And listen, it's not unusual for, for people to come to, you might want to say, the religious church and to see a culture and think, okay, I want to embrace that culture, that Christian culture. And so I might dress a certain way or I might behave a certain way. I might pick up some of the habits that that Christian culture has. That's simply rearranging the furniture because true conversion has not taken place yet. All right? The next one, just simply becoming more religious. You know, stay, oh, I'm going to give. I'm going to attend. I'm going to serve. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to do all these things. I want to be more religious as if doing the things that are part of this checklist is, is what is needed. Um, it's not simply making a decision. It's not walking down an aisle. It's not filling out a card. It's not praying a prayer. Although, you know, walking an aisle in some contexts um, may not have been a bad thing, but that didn't save you. Writing something on a card didn't save you, but it may have been a good way to help you 
consider what was going on at that point in time. Um, praying a prayer was appropriate, but simply mouthing words isn't necessarily conversion. Okay, And this is where we kind of get confused, because it's not so much that the data of those things are necessarily bad, they're good, but conversion is not based on that data. Sometimes it's kind of like, well, I'm turning over a new leaf. It's kind of like a New Year's resolution. I'm going to love God more. I'm going to love Jesus more. I'm going to serve Him more. I'm going to read my Bible more. And you know how that is, right? Anyone here kept their New Year's resolutions? As you can see, I have. Okay. Very well, I might add. Okay. All right. So whether it's simply a, a mental decision to follow Jesus or a moral resolve to live in a better way, both fall short of what God tell us, tells us takes place at conversion. They're both ultimately man-centered. And stress what we do, what we choose, what we must accomplish. They emphasize man's attempt to justify himself before God, to live according to some standards, or to try to hide our sin by doing good deeds. Now, let's think about true conversion. True conversion is turning away from sin and turning to God. We talked about that last week. Here's sin. And that, that whole step of repentance is turning away from sin. All right? And by faith and turning to Christ. That, that whole package there is talking about true conversion. So it involves both faith and repentance. It involves resting and relying on Christ alone. It, it involves trusting Him and His merits, His work on the cross, and what it accomplished for us. Because listen, you can never attend church enough. You can never read your Bible enough. You can never give enough. You can never pray enough. You can never do good deeds enough to stand before God and say, Look at me! I deserve to be one of your children. See, this is all man's effort. Now, this, this man-centeredness bypasses the heart. And this is ultimately where we need to go. I want you to notice now what it says about Lydia. What, what the writer here, Luke, tells us took place in Lydia and her life. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And I want you to notice there, the emphasis is on the Lord. He opened her heart. He is the one that, that brought a freshness into her life. She was blind, she was in bondage, she was bankrupt, but God did a work in her heart that now she was able to see. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, I believe it is says, the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. In other words, the person who, whose heart has not been transformed does not comprehend the things of the Word of God. And what's happening here with Lydia is that God takes the blindness and removes it. He opens her heart so that she can see and she can understand what is being said here by Paul. So it is his doing, not Lydia's. Her opened eyes, he opened her eyes, he released her from her bondage. And this is what we, we know and understand as regeneration, being born again. 
Of course, the classic passage on being born again is where? John 3, okay, where Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's not the only place, though. Um, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. It says there, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. So this, this being born again, this being um, totally renewed, rebirthed, is what is taking place at conversion. We call it regeneration. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13 says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born... Not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There is a new birth. It's a new birth that is this regeneration. So what is regeneration? Well, regeneration marks the moment and the means of our coming into union with Christ. It is the instantaneous change from spiritual death to spiritual life. So it's that point when God breathes breath into us. He makes us alive in him. He removes the blindness. Right? Now, I'm going to give you another definition. Uh, it's in your handout there. Um, oh, we, we talked about this, repentance and faith. Here's a, a definition here of um, regeneration. I want you to read it with me here, and then we'll talk about it. Born-again Christians are defined as people who said they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their life today, and who also indicated that they believe when they die they will go to heaven because they had confessed their sins and had accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. All right. Is this a good definition of regeneration? Why? It talks about being born again. Talks about a personal commitment to Christ. Talks about when you die, you'll go to heaven, confessing your sins. Huh? It is. It's all you. It's all, this is man-centered. Listen, Catholic could affirm this statement. A Mormon could affirm this statement, believe it or not. All right, you know where this comes from? And this will help you understand why not to take this too seriously. When you hear a statistic that says that born-again believers do X, Y, and Z, understand, you have to have a good definition of born-again. You with me there? You know, George Barna does all the statistics and all that kind of stuff, okay? Now, it's not necessarily that the statistics are, aren't telling. I think they are. It's a reflection of our American Christianity. Um, but this, de this definition just does not go anywhere near far enough. Okay, so we're going to look at a definition, a much older definition um, from 1833. The Heidelberg, uh, sorry, the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. Heidelberg would have been even earlier than that, all right? New Hampshire Confession of Faith, which, by the way, is the basis of, you might want to say, Baptist church thinking, believe it or not. Okay? So let's look at this one. 
You have it in your handout. We believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces wrought in our souls by the regenerating Spirit of God. Whereby, being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness, and of the way of salvation by Christ, we turn to God with unfeigned contrition, confession, and supplication for mercy. At the same time, heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, and relying on Him alone as the only and all-sufficient Savior. Now, which one has more weight to it? But why be so weighty? Don't we want to encourage people? Don't we want people to come to, you know, to choose Jesus to be their Savior? No. I say that very carefully based on what I just said. Listen. Any choice I make to embrace Christ is because God has already done a work in my life. You get that? Look at the second part here. Notice what it says here. Whereby being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness, and of the way of salvation, we turn to God with unfeigned contrition. What is the basis of our turning? What is the basis of our conversion? Go back to the top. We believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces, means gifts, wrought in our souls by the regenerating Spirit of God. All right, let's just kind of step back a little bit and think about this. If I'm dead, I cannot respond. Right? I can't. Until God goes and breathes into me. At that point, new birth has taken place. But simultaneously, right at that same point, repentance and faith take place. He gives me the ability to repent. He gives me faith to trust in Him completely and fully. My friends, this is so important. Otherwise, if we say, ah, you know, we all have a little bit of faith. You just got to exercise your faith in the right person. Then... Whose faith are you trusting in? Did I really, 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 really believe? Did I really, really, really embrace? Listen, the swoop of Scripture is this. It is God who works in us. It is His grace breathed into our lives so that from death we are made alive. From darkness we're brought into light. From blindness we can see. So there's this movement here that is all God at work in us. Do we respond? The answer is yes. How is it we respond? Only because God breathed into us first. Okay? And I know this is, this is tough. This is confusing. And we're looking at it underneath and saying, oh, okay, I'm tugging here. And it seems, I understand that. I get that. But God is very clear when he reveals what he is doing and says, listen, not only do I choose you, I called you, but I'm also regenerating you. Now, a couple of verses of scripture, Acts chapter 11 and verse 18, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, these are important. Acts chapter two, uh, 11 and verse 18 says this, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. 
Repentance, friends, is a gift granted to you from God. That's what it's saying here. We go back to the Ephesians passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It, referring back to the faith, is the gift of God. Now friends, I'll just read what um, Mark Dever says. I took it right out of there just to reinforce it. According to the Bible, repentance is a gift of God. And faith is a gift of God, given not because of our merit, but because of Christ's merit. Okay? I know. Wrap your hands around that. The beauty of that, friends, is this. That I, it's not because of me, it's not because of my slickness and my wisdom and my skillful in understanding the gospel. It's because God came and breathed life into me so that I could see. Breathe life into me so I could understand. All right? Now, let's go back to Lydia. In that verse we saw, the Lord opened her heart to do what? To pay attention to what was being said by Paul. What was Paul saying? Well, the passage doesn't tell us. But if we think about the norm of the pattern of Paul and when he says something, what is he usually saying? The gospel. All right? He is ministering the gospel. And God now has given Lydia the ability to comprehend it and to understand the gospel. Did she deserve it? Did she do anything in herself to go before God and say, God, see, look at all I'm doing. Look at all. Don't I deserve this? Absolutely not. And he didn't do that with you either. And that is what is so amazing about grace. That's what's so amazing about regeneration is that God in his wisdom has breathed life into me and we stand back and we say, God, why? Why me? But he has. And we joy in it. So the bottom line for us then is this. Well, let me read another verse of scripture here. Uh, again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, in light of what we just said here. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. It is just amazing how many times we see the word of God and conversion and regeneration tied together. The word of God is the means by which God breathes out his regeneration into people's lives and brings about conversion, okay? So the bottom line for us to see here is this. It is God who initiated our conversion. It is he who elects, calls, and regenerates. It is he who opens our blind eyes, gives us a new heart, etc. Okay? 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love toward us. Not that, oh God, I love you so much, therefore you did this for me. God, you just love me. And you sent your son to die for me. Okay. Now, those who are truly born again are converted and regenerated by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit can say with John Newton this, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. Yet I can truly say, I am not what I once was. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, Lydia's fruit. This is important for us to see. How does she respond? 
What do we see in her life? Just in this short little passage in the story. It says, And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. All right? The first thing I want you to notice here um, is what I'm calling her identification with Christ, which is reflected in what? Her baptism. What is baptism? It's publicly demonstrating this inward change in your life that has been brought about by God himself. She does that. All right? and I just want to encourage you. I don't know, along your journey, when you came to know Christ, when he drew you to himself and you were regenerated, if you have followed that up by publicly declaring it through the waters of baptism. If you haven't, we need to talk. It's part of what God commands. It is also part of a beautiful demonstration by one of his children saying, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and he's the one that did this work in my life. Now, it's also interesting along this, it says, and her household as well. Now, some people come to this and say, see, because Lydia got saved, um, therefore anyone in her household automatically gets saved. That's not the idea there. And you may have known circumstances where in a family one person is, you know, is, is regenerated. New life comes to them and it, it has a rippling effect on the family. And the rest of the family follows in over time to embrace the reality is that God had breathed into that family. And I think that's what's going on here. So the, it wasn't kind of Lydia coming home and saying, okay, listen, I got Jesus and you need him too, so you pray. Not like that at all. Uh, what's going on here is just that the, the, the word and the gospel has breathed into that family through Lydia and Lydia sharing that reality, I think, has just multiplied and people come and have embraced the same truth. Okay? The second thing I want you to notice here is this. Um, Lydia had an attachment with the cause of Christ, right? She opened up her home. She was committed to Christ, but she was also committed to the cause of Christ. She identified with Jesus, and she identified with ultimately what was going to be the church that met in her home. But the hospitality was a welcome. You are my family. Come and reside with me, and I want to be a part of the building of the kingdom. And friends, this is what was going on with her, but here's the point. When a person is truly born again, when people are converted, there will be fruit. And that fruit will be visible. It will be evident. It will be evident by actions. It will be evident by attitudes. It will be evident about priorities. It will be evident because of what you hunger for, what you're passionate about. So let's just kind of circle back here and let's look just at the top of this, this needle point and let's think through what, what we've gleaned so far, right? God's process. Election, God's choosing. Calling, God drawing those whom he has chosen to himself. Regeneration, God birthing or breathing life into us. And, of course, that involves repentance and faith. There's this next one here we haven't talked about, but this also is what's taking place, justification. At that moment of regeneration, God declares us righteous. 
He declares us not righteous in ourselves, but righteous in that we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We are in Christ. And that in Christ protects us then because we are clothed with his righteousness and he paid for our sin. And what he accomplished on the cross then applied to us and applied to our account declares us righteous. Okay, We are justified. It's a legal term. All right. Last one here. Adoption. God welcomed us into his family. Now, there's a lot more to say about these subjects, but listen, this is what God says he does, right? I mean, we, last week we talked about the gospel, but now this is the process that God takes us through, and this is what he is doing as he's looking at us, he's electing us, he's drawing us, he's regenerating us, he is justifying us, and he's adopting us into his family. These are all things that we did not deserve. And yet we are the recipients of. See, conversion is not simply someone like I had in my youth group in Michigan. One of the young people was trying to convince another young person to follow Christ. And they said, all you need to do is to add Jesus to your life. Now, there are times when, as a youth pastor, you want to pull your hair out. That was one of them. Because he was a youth leader. And I said, no, no, no. Conversion's a complete, total change in nature that comes as a result of God breathing in new life, his grace into my soul, into my heart, recreating me, re, just re, uh, reworking my, my whole existence to find its identity totally and completely in Christ. We're not just adding him. It's not just a, a new little phase we're going through. It's not just a change of habit here. A change of, it's a whole change in nature. Anything else, friends, is man-centered. True conversion is totally and completely God-centered. Now, I'm going to have a word of prayer. And we're going to take just a few minutes to talk about the implications of this. Okay, And this is where we can all participate. Lord, help us today. I just feel like I have been incomplete, and I just ask, Lord, that you would take the things that I have shared this morning, and Lord, even the example of Lydia, and allow that to be a framework that we can have a, a grasp and a better understanding of what it is that you're doing and have done in our lives. And I do ask, Lord, as, as we have walked through this, that if there is someone here that doesn't, uh, Lord, isn't confident of their conversion and really just wants to to, to grow in that area and to have an assurance of that, Lord, that this would be the beginning of that discussion, that we would not presume that simply because we did something religiously in the Christian culture that we grew up in, that that truly satisfied new birth. Lord, we, we want so much for you to be our God and to have your way with us, Lord. So do that. Allow your Holy Spirit freedom to challenge, to convict, and to motivate us, Lord, to pursue you, uh, Lord, more, and to have a greater understanding of your, of your gospel and your process in that gospel, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right. So the question right now is this. Um, from, a, from, a, from the perspective of application, 